tonight, please turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Something in our system went down tonight, and so uh, I'm going to have to hold this. So if it slows me down a little bit, I'm sorry. We'll try to do our best to keep up. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Several, or two weeks ago, not last week, but the week before, we started on this new section, uh, Roman numeral 5, the Christian and his behavior. The Christian and his behavior, and it encompassed a large section of Scripture from chapter 3, verse 1, right through chapter 4 and verse 12. And so the first week we looked at sin in the life revealed. Keep that in mind, sin in the life revealed. And that's what we'll finish out tonight, and then we'll start on sin in the life uh, resisted and then repudiated. And so we'll see those last two points tonight. We talked about the sin in the mouth. You'll remember verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3 deal with the sin of the mouth. Uh, for many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man. It must have been very important to God because he gives us a large section of scripture that deals with the tongue. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear another reminder about the tongue in summary tonight when we get to the end of this passage as we resist the sins of the mouth. And then we looked at the sin in the mind last week. Number two was sin in the mind. And then tonight we're going to look at number three, and that's where your notes should pick up, is sin in the members. Sin in the members. And so our notes will overlap again just a little bit, so you can kind of see where we are. Letter A we've already dealt with, number one we've dealt with, number two we've dealt with. And so tonight we'll start on number three, sin in the members. And that's verses, chapter four, verses one through five. And then we will move on to sin in the life resisted. And sin in the life repudiated. I'm thankful for a Bible that identifies the sins that will destroy a church. And so that's first and foremost. We've seen throughout the scripture so far in the book of James some things that we need to work on, some things that are a real issue. But more importantly than just that, not only does the scripture identify it for us, it also gives us a battle plan. And that's so important. Uh, it's important, uh, you understand, when you're disciplining children, you don't just say, don't do that. We tell them, well, you don't, you don't touch the stove. You tell them, if you touch the stove, it's going to burn you. And there's a reason, and we kind of reason with them and help them. And so the Bible does that for us as well, and gives us a, a, a method of attack, if you will. How do we attack this sin, and how do we deal with that? And so tonight we're going to look at that, sin in the life resisted, then sin in the life repudiated. But let's go back to number three, and we'll read the first five verses of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and read it with me, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Let's pray together. Father, as we finish out these sins that the scripture is naming for us, and Lord, as they're widely categorized, I pray that you'd help us to see that Within these categories, there are some specifics that speak to our hearts. Each one of us deal with that besetting sin and things that 
damage our walk with God on a daily basis. Satan is always tempting and seeking whom he may devour. Help us, Lord, to learn how to resist, how to stand up against our foe. And so, Father, as we work our way through the Scriptures tonight, Lord, that you would impress upon our heart uh, those important battle strategies that will help us to have the victory in Christ Jesus. Father, we need your help, and so may the Spirit of God fill me and fill each one of us that we might learn from the Word and apply it to our lives tonight. And Father, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll notice the very first thing we see is it starts with a question. The first question that is asked, it says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Often, you know, the right type of question gets us thinking, doesn't it? Maybe you've asked somebody, what were you thinking? Well, that, that question's kind of loaded, isn't it? It makes me go, well, what do you mean, what does I think? I must have done something wrong. They're not pleased with me for them to ask a question like that. And so James asks this question, and maybe I, I got I to figure these, these Christians at Jerusalem, this had become status quo in their church. This fighting, this warring, this bickering, this gossiping, this complaining, the sins of the tongue that we talked about two weeks ago, the, the sins uh, uh, in, in the mouth and the sins in the mind that we talked about last week, this had become the norm. It had festered in the church. And I don't even believe, I, I, and I believe it's the case with many, many people today, that they didn't even realize any longer that it was sin. You know, I think in our society, things have been dumbed down so much that we're not calling sin, sin anymore. They're calling abortion choice. They're calling homosexuality, which is a deviant lifestyle behavior, they're just calling it a life choice. They're calling it normal. It's not normal, it's deviant. And so they'll call evil good and good evil, the Bible says, and we're, we're warned of that. And so I, I think this church needed a jolt. James is categorizing a lot of sin as, as we've gone through chapter 3 and 4, but now he just stops and asks him point blank, from whence come wars and fightings among who? You. In case you haven't caught it yet, church, I'm talking to you. And so he asks them this type of question. And so we see some key words in that first verse that are going to help us understand what he's getting at in the next few verses. The first word is wars. There are different Greek words used for the word war in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we find two of them right in this verse. We see the word wars at the very first sentence. And then at the end, it talks about the wars in your members. Wars in your members. There are two different Greek words there. The first one is the sum total of a battle. It's about armies on battlefields. And we think about World War I and World War II was made up of many battles. And the Bible kind of speaks of that when it says, From whence come wars? and fightings. And so there's this sum total of a battle. This is more than just a fight that has happened. This church is in constant war. Whether or not they realize it, there have been sides taken, there's factions within the church, and they are fighting with each other into a place where James has to identify it as war. Things have escalated. And then we see the word fightings. And, and this is a word that's always plural in the New Testament. And what it refers to is a quarrelsome attitude. Have you, ever, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and got in the car with your wife or your husband later and said, boy, did you sense some tension there? Something's not just right. That's what this word fightings means. 
It means that tense, quarrelsome atmosphere. Maybe there's been an issue and you've forgiven that person, and yet when you get with them the next time, you still feel the, tens- the tension that is going on between you. Or maybe there's been something that's ought between you, and you're not even aware of it. There's been an unkind word or a joke that was passed that they did not appreciate. And so now there's tension, and you're not even aware of it, but you sense it. That's what this word fightings means. To have that spirit of a quarrelsome spirit all the time. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've been in that place before. You don't enjoy fellowshipping. You don't enjoy going to church. You don't, you don't want to be a part of that. And so the Bible says, from, where does that come from? Where does that come from? And then we see that last word, wars again. And it's a different word. It means an embattled encampment. It means an army that has taken up a defensive position, and they're ready for battle. Can you imagine that in a church? A group of people that says, you know what, we're right and you're wrong and we're going to defend our position and we're going to fight no matter what comes our way. That's the wrong kind of spirit. And so James identifies it and he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. And so we see the first question and we see the question asked in verse 1, but in verses 2 through 4 we see the question answered. The question answered. James, James asked the question rhetorically, and so now he's going to give him the answer. If he were to ask that question to uh, the church, he might say, where are these wars? And they might say, what are you talking about wars? We're getting along just fine as long as everybody does what I want to do. As long as everybody agrees with me, we're doing just fine. There's no fighting. There's no war. It's become the status quo, this tension going on in the church. And so he says, I'm going to have to answer this question. First of all, we see there are three reasons for their wars. Three reasons. We've categorized them this way. First of all, their fleshly lusts. Look what the scripture says. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. So we see under their fleshly lusts, first of all, their wants. Their lusts are never satisfied. Look, look what the scripture says at the start of verse 2. Ye lust and have not. Why, why are they not satisfied? Because they're not within God's will. They're fighting and they're warring and they're uh, a quarrelsome spirit with one another. They're not in the will of God. And so they're, this has sprung forth and these quarrels have sprung forth out of personal desire. Out of the lusts of the flesh. And so they're never satisfied because they're on conflict all the time. And then we see the second part of the verse, we see their wars. Not just their wants, their wars. Their lusts, their desires have escalated to wars. You say, what kind of lusts are you talking about? They're saying, I want my way in the church. This is how I want it to be. The preacher never sings my favorite hymn. And I'm angry and I'm just going to walk out. They have fellowships, but they never have the kind of sandwich that I like at the fellowship. You know, it's it's like putting tuna fish in front of Bob Simmons. You just don't do that. He hates fish. But some people get angry about little things like that. Why don't they care about me? And it's all about me, me, me. That's lust. Desiring to have it our way. But now it's escalated to war. Ye lust and ye have not. Now look what it says. Ye kill. And desire to have. 
You say, preacher, is there murder going on in this church of Jerusalem? Well, I'm reminded of what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. When we are angry with a brother without a cause, we stand in the same judgment as somebody that murders, the Bible says. And so James is reducing these fightings and these wars, saying these are just petty little things. Escalating your own desires over everybody else's is wrong. And so it's escalated to war. And the verse finishes out saying that very thing. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. And so we see, first of all, the first reason for their fightings, or the first part of the answer, was their fleshly lusts. And secondly, it's their faulty logic. Their faulty logic. How many, how many of you understand this? When you get caught up in sin... And you say, well, you're not talking about me, preacher. Listen, we're all sinners, right? We've all sinned. When we get caught up in sin, we, the first thing that goes is our thinking. We don't think properly. How many of you under, can agree with that? Well, we, we just aren't reasonable. We don't make sense anymore. We fly off the handle easily. We get angry without a cause. We're not thinking right. That's sin infiltrating our lives. And notice what the Scripture says about their faulty reason, logic. At the end of verse 2, it says, You ask, and yet are you fighting your war, yet you have not. Why? Because you ask not. Their logic says, This is what I want, and so I'm going to go and get it. And if I don't get it, I'm going to dig in, and I'm going to fight in war with my brother. God says, If you really want it, why don't you just ask me for it? If you really want that special song, why don't you pray? Why don't you have the right attitude? If things aren't meeting your needs, why don't you ask God to meet your needs? The promise is still in the Bible, but my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. Listen, it it is not the church's job to supply for your needs. It is God's. The church's job is to point you to Him. That's what we're supposed to do. We are to preach Jesus Christ. Now, we can be there as the arms and the feet of Jesus as much as we can, and we can try to help. But the, the, the very, uh, if I'm being very honest, listen, when you get down to that deepest, darkest hour, and you don't want anybody else to know about it, you need to be able to call upon Jesus. And you need to be able to go to Him. That's, that's the, the reason we have church, is to point people to Christ. The Bible says He is the preeminent one in the church. Unto Him be glory in the church. And so their logic was faulty. And, and the first part we see is it's a failure to pray personally. They didn't have a prayer life. He says, you ask not. You're not praying about these things. And one of the reasons for their carnality and their fightings and their wars is they'd quit praying. They'd quit praying. A praying church is a victorious church. And when people start sliding, the first thing we normally ask is, hey, hey, how's your prayer life? You praying? Well, not maybe like I should. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake? I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's your prayer life. It doesn't work like that. It's talking about an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading your Bible, praying. And when I say reading your Bible, not just reading through a schedule. Having some meaningful time with the Lord. 
asking the Lord to speak to you and show you some things. But their, their sub- substance, or their, the substance of their problem here was a failure to f- pray personally. They were seeking fulfillment, but in the wrong place. For the child of God, there's no satisfaction in the world. Think about this from the book of James. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above. And that's where we need to seek it. And so not only did they have a failure to pray personally, they had a failure to pray properly. So they did pray from time to time, but look what it says in the next verse. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. So James says the first part of your problem here and your faulty reasoning, your logic's gone, is you think you're going to find satisfaction by seeking after it when you're supposed to be praying for it. Finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And you just quit praying. You ask not. But when you finally do get down on your knees and pray, what are you praying for? Something to consume on your own lusts. It's not for the glory of God. It's not for the benefit of the church. It's not for the help of others, but it's simply to consume it upon your own lusts. They lack seeking God's will and the benefit of the church. It was for their lusts and not their needs. You know, if, if you think about this, this is a warning against the prosperity gospel, isn't it? Isn't that what the prosperity gospel preaches? You can have millions of dollars. Just ask God for it. Why? So you can consume it on your own lusts. That, that's not scriptural or biblical at all. And so we've seen the first two reasons that they are failing here. First of all, their fleshly lust. Secondly, their faulty logic. And third, of, third is in verse 4, their fatal liaisons. Their fatal liaisons. Look what it says there. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Wow, that's some strong language, isn't it? James isn't fooling around. He's telling them the truth. You've committed adultery against God. You've got an idol. And that idol is self. You're seeking after your own lusts. You've elevated yourself against the glory of God. And God is a jealous God. He's not going to share His glory with another. They've become guilty of idolatry, and that which is spiritual adultery. So ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Look at these fatal liaisons. First of all, we see their worldliness exposed. James identifies what has fostered this attitude all along. They've had an unhealthy relationship with the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's against God. They're too involved in the world, and it's creeping into the church. Somebody said this, and I think it's a good quote. I don't know who said it, to be honest with you, but it's an excellent quote. We are fine as long as the boat's in the water, but when the water gets in the boat, we're in a lot of trouble. Now think about that. The church is to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And when the world gets in the church, we're in a lot of trouble, and it becomes a sinking ship. And so we see, first of all, their worldliness exposed. The Bible says in 1 John, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And so their worldliness was the cause of their fightings and their wars. Why? Because it led to a faulty prayer life. They started asking for things that were of the world and not spiritually minded. 
And it escalated from there, and they begin to dig in and have fightings and wars among themselves. And so we see their worldliness exposed, but also in verse 4, we see their wickedness exposed. James flat out tells them that this sin makes them the enemy of God. Whoso therefore ever will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's pretty straight preaching, isn't it? I mean, we say, well, don't, let's not be so hard in our preaching today. James says you're the enemy of God. If you've let the world in, if you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. He was pretty straight about what he was saying. And then we see verse 5. We've had the first question, but look at the further question in verse 5. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? There's a further warning here. This is not talking about the Spirit of God that dwells within us. This is talking about the Spirit of man. You say, how do you know that? Because the Spirit of God does not lust to envy. Somebody, amen? You're with me tonight? The Spirit of God cannot lust to envy. The Spirit of God cannot sin. So this is the Spirit of man. And he's saying, when you are left alone to your own spirit, your own flesh, it will lust to envy. It's a warning to this church that's exactly what had happened. They were lusting for their own desires because they were envious one of another. If we are left to our own base, if we are not walking in the Spirit of God, we are fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And this is exactly what we will become. That is sin in the life. Now look, number B, letter B tonight, sin in the life resisted. James now switches gears and he says, now we've got to combat this thing. We've talked about sin in the mouth, sin in the members. And so he says, now we need to, how do we combat this? Look at verse 6. But he giveth more grace. It's all about him. Always comes back to the Lord. How are we victorious in anything? Through Jesus Christ. First John says, what is, what is the victory? Even our faith. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are to be overcomers through Jesus Christ. And so he says, He giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Draw nigh, or submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we see, first of all, the call to submit. The call to submit. And we see under the call to submit in verse 6, the secret spiritual virtue. Virtue's power. We receive power from God to overcome. The secret spiritual power is found in verse 6. He giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. How do we receive grace? Humble ourselves before God. Submit ourselves to Him. It's a call to submit to God. By the way, this, this secret for spiritual power or spiritual virtue is how we win every victory. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things, what? Through Christ, which strengthens me. It's not of our own. There's nothing we can do. We must have on the armor of God. It's His armor that fights the battles for us. So it's a call to submit unto God. And then we see the secret of spiritual victory. Verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it's a call to submit. So the secret of spiritual virtue and the secret of spiritual victory is to resist 
But to resist is useless without submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And somebody, somebody will often say that to you. If you're struggling, they'll say, hey, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't forget, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You won't resist anything without being humble and receiving the grace of God that we find in verse 6. And so that's the secret to spiritual victory. Hebrews chapter 11. By the, by the way, do you know the devil's not afraid of you? The devil's not afraid of you. But when you have on the armor of God, when you're filled with the Spirit of God, when you're walking in the Spirit of God, when you're submitting yourselves to God, boy, then he gets afraid. Because it's God that's fighting the battles. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of those who lived by faith. And one of their characteristics it lists in verse 34 is this, out of weakness were made strong. Why? Because they put their faith in God. So we see the call to submit in verse 6 and 7. In verses 8 through 10, we see the call to commit. The call to commit. Listen, walking in the Spirit is a lifelong commitment. Trusting God is a lifelong commitment. And we need to make that commitment if we're going to have any spiritual victory whatsoever. And so in verse 8, it says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Christian growth and ultimately maturity takes the child of God making a commitment to God. We can't be half-hearted. There can be no fence-sitters. We must get all in. Jesus said, again, I love this verse. We say it all the time. I am the way, the truth, the life. The Bible also says that narrow is the way that leads to life eternal, and few there be that find it. It's a narrow path that we take. And Jesus is the way. It's singular. There's no other way. They're all dangerous and, and places of, of great torment and, and torture. And so let, let's be careful to commit unto the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. That's commitment. They've crucified the flesh. Ephesians 4.22 says, That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is a corrupt according to the deceitful lust. He says, do away with the old man completely. That's commitment. There's an absolute change of heart and mind when we come to Christ. And so we see in verse 8 some things here that we'll point out. Letter A, a word about His coming. A word about coming. We must come to the Lord. Draw nigh to God. There's a great distance between us and God. Sin has put a great gulf there. Adam and Eve were separated from the garden because of sin. And ever since then, man has created religions trying to get back to God. But Jesus Christ bridged that gap through Calvary. And He gave us the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ. And every time we sin, though, we damage that fellowship and we put distance between us. And because we have a free will, God doesn't force Himself on us. We must draw nigh to Him. The Bible says, and we'll look at this in a second, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. We must confess. We must draw nigh to God. We must come to Him. Consider the songwriter William Neville's words when he said this, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. 
What causes this distance to form? Well, a lot of things. But all of them have to do with a weakened relationship on our end. It's our fault, not God's. And so then we see, secondly, in verse 8, a word about coming, and then we see a word about cleansing. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and be purified. James speaks about some specifics regarding this important relationship. How are we going to do it? Well, we need to be cleansed from time to time. Get sin out of our lives. And I'll say that verse again. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a relationship that needs to be maintained and sin is its enemy. And so we must come to Him and we must be cleansed. And then we see in verse 9 a word about crying. A word about crying. Look what it says. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Solomon said this in Proverbs 14. Fools make a mock at sin. James says, don't be a fool. Weep over your sin. Weep, have a heaviness over your sin. Mourn your sin. And what happens? Your laughter, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. But we know that when we weep and cry out to God, God hears our prayers. And God will cleanse us and He'll save us from our sin. So a word about crying. And then we see fourthly, a word about contrition. A word about contrition, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. This is a picture of the man that has a deep awareness of his sin. And that's that's what the word contrition means, is a deep awareness of one's own sin. Daniel, in the uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, we read about Daniel in the lion's den. And the Bible talks about when he was praying, what he prayed for. He prayed for the sins of the people and he prayed for his own sin. He was deeply aware of his condition before God. That's contrition. And when we get to that place, the Bible says, we'll humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. You ever been so broken about your sin that you go hat in hand to God? You can't even look up? I think maybe that's why we bow our head and close our eyes because we can't even look up. We can't... can't, the Bible says, come boldly to the throne of grace. To me, that doesn't, say, that doesn't say bow your head and close your eyes. But I think as we humble our heart, that's probably, we don't want to make eye contact with the Lord. It's like a child being rebuked by his father. They stand there with their head down, their eyes at the ground. We used to have a dog do that. Sheba, she'd get all pouty, she'd look down, and we knew she'd wet somewhere. She had a guilty conscience. That's how we ought to be before God. We ought to, we ought to feel guilty at times. Not because... Not because God places guilt upon us, but because the Holy Spirit's conviction in our heart is so great that we have to go and cry for mercy. And we got to seek out a God that loves us and forgives us. That's contrition. So we see sin in the life resisted, letter B and letter C. Sin in the life repudiated. Look at verses 11 and 12, and we'll be done in just a few minutes. Speak not evil one of another. Brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? So we see the command, first of all, and the command is expressed in verse 11, the first part. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. This is in reference to gossip and slander. That's what evil speaking is back in the book of Ephesians. 
put away clamor and malice and evil speaking and all those things. And so we have to be careful of evil speaking. And to speak evil of our brethren is gossip and slander. Now, be careful. Sometimes we take a couple verses in the Bible and we say, well, there you go, we're not supposed to judge. The Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged. We always forget that last part. Lest you be judged means unless you're willing to stand up to the same judgment. Because let me tell you, you better be judging things in this world. I'm not talking about the brethren, because we have a prohibition against that in James chapter 4. But every, every time we go out in the world, we have to make judgment calls. What is right and what is wrong? What will I allow to be my children to be exposed to and what will I not allow them to be exposed to? What friends are healthy in my life and what friends do not help me? And so we're always having to make the right judgments. That's not what the Bible is talking about. We just have to be willing to stand up to the same type of scrutiny. And so when the Bible says here, though, it's talking about brethren. Brethren, speak not, speak not evil one of another. Brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law. And you say, why is that? Here's why. Because sin has already been judged. The Bible has already judged sin. God has judged sin already. It has been nailed to the cross. It's under the blood. And so a brother that's in sin, his sin is already covered by the blood. What he needs now is cleansing. He needs to get his heart right. And what's the Bible's instruction for that? If a brother be overtaken with a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So we're not to judge them. We're to go to them. We're to recognize that sin and go and try to be a help and a blessing. Maybe we ought to pray for them. I don't think there's anything wrong if you have a loved one that you share that prayer request. If, if a loved one's struggling or going astray, that you take that prayer request. You say, i got a, I got a wayward child. And you go to somebody that you trust that will not gossip and say, would you pray with me? The Bible says to bear one another's burdens. But we are not to speak evil of the brethren. That's repudiated in the Bible. So the command is expressed, and then the command is explained. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. Here's the truth, friend. They already know it's sin. And there's a chance that they're going to come to church and the Holy Spirit's going to prick their heart and they're going to go down to the altar and they're going to get it right with God. They're going to go sit down and you're never going to know about it. Nobody else is going to know about it. But if you gossip about it and you speak evil about it, what's going to happen in the local church? They're never going to want to go back to that place. As a matter of fact, they may never go to another church again. And so we must be very careful how we deal with the brethren's sin. Take it to God, take it to them, but don't take it anywhere else. Because when we gossip and slander them, the Bible says we are taking the place of the law. We are putting ourselves as judge, jury, and executioner. And that is not our place. So what is involved? And then what is inferred? But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. The implication here, or what is implied, or what is inferred, is that we are taking the place of Christ. Somehow we think by gossiping and telling everybody that it'll get back to them and maybe they'll get it right. That's, that's, you're not the Holy Spirit. Pray for them. Go to them. Encourage them. Rebuke them if necessary. 
in the spirit of meekness and fear. But let's not gossip and slander. Let's be very careful. And then we see a final comment in verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? We, we are in a place, listen, I will make no apology whatsoever for judging an abortionist. That's sin. That is clearly named in the Bible. We'll, we'll not make any bones about that. But a brother and sister in Christ, there's lots of processes laid out in the Bible. If you have aught with a brother, go to your brother. If your brother have aught against you, go to them anyway. The Bible says if any man sins against thee or transgresses against thee, go to him. If you won't hear it, take another witness. If they won't hear it, take it to the church. If they won't hear the church, then you deal with it. Put them out and make them as a publican that the Lord might chastise them in the world. There's a biblical prescription how to deal with it. But boy, the tongue gets us in trouble. Isn't that another rebuke against the tongue? The gossip and the slander. He says you are, there's one lawgiver there's one who's in charge, one who's able to save and destroy, but who art thou that judgest another? Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to be careful. For when we slander a brother, we're talking about one of God's children. And he doesn't take too kindly to it. So pray, help us to understand the Scripture tonight, and not just the final, but the, the entire context that we've talked about tonight. And, Speak to our hearts and help us to grow. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.